This is Nicola Torbett coming to you from the unceded Ohlone territory, now known as Oakland, California. You're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, of surge, and specifically surge faith and surge action. This is the podcast where we think together about what our Christian and Hebrew scriptures have to say about the realities in which we are now living, realities characterized by racism, xenophobia, misogyny, homophobia, and ecocide. Often, this means digging down through inherited interpretations of scripture that have been used to justify and perpetuate domination and desecration. We know that our faith originated as a resistance movement against Roman imperial colonization, and we want to learn what our contemporary movements can learn from that wisdom. It's important to say that I am engaging this question as a white, documented American citizen, and that matters. It both limits and shapes my perspective. And because one of the primary goals of this podcast is to organize more white people into racial justice struggles, I am primarily addressing other white people with this message. We are white people challenging ourselves and other white people to step up, speak out, and stand in solidarity with movements led by people of color. As part of that work, we hope you will also listen to podcasts by people of color. I'm going to list some really great ones in the transcript so please check those out. So, this week's lectionary is big on the blessings and curses. We've got the Beatitudes as our gospel lesson, and it's Luke's version, so we've got both the blessings and the woes. And then there's Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. Thus says the Lord, cursed are those who trust in mere mortals, and so on. So it's going to get a little intense around here. Get ready. Fasten your seatbelt, as they say. Feel your feet on the ground. Notice the breath that is sustaining you. Know that you are loved, wholly, fully, unconditionally, just as you are. And let's dig in. I'm going to focus today mostly on the Jeremiah passage because I want to dig deep down into this matter of blessing and cursing. My hunch is that we've profoundly mistaken what those are, and if we can get clear on that, then the Beatitudes pretty much interpret themselves. So let's start with just the first couple verses. This is Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by the water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, 
and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. So it's a fairly simple passage at first blush, one that follows a very familiar structure that occurs again and again in Scripture, including even in today's gospel passage, as I mentioned. Those who do this one kind of thing are cursed, or woe to them, and those who do this other kind of thing are blessed. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it's easy when I read a passage like this to imagine God sitting up there somewhere in the heavens, surveying human behavior and handing down blessings and curses according to what he sees. This is, I think, our inherited interpretation of this kind of passage. But the thing is, it's a dangerous interpretation. When we imagine God as the big judge in the sky handing down rewards and punishments. That gives a whole lot of power to human judges and to our criminal justice system. It legitimizes this whole system of rewards and punishments. I'm grateful to the good folks at Soul Force for making this point in a webinar that they did for Surge Faith last year. This interpretation of scripture as, you know, God as a big judge in the sky conjures a sort of unconscious equivalency between judges and God. It suggests that judges are godlike in their discernment, and that the criminal justice system is an arbiter of godly morality, and even an extension of God's judgment, when we know, thanks to Michelle Alexander and all those who have studied the racial breakdown of our prisons, that it is not. And that, for example, the criminal justice system incarcerates black people and other people of color at vastly higher rates and for longer sentences than it does white people, even when they commit similar crimes. So the image of God as judge in the sky is dangerous. And it's not really accurate, is it? I think we all know, if we're paying attention, if we're willing to be honest, that justice and kindness are not necessarily rewarded in this life, and that cruelty and deceit meet with far fewer consequences than we might wish. Than we might wish. I mean, let's be honest. At the highest level of finance and, it seems, of government, to the degree that those can even be separated anymore, unethical behavior is pretty much business as usual. And very few of those folks meet any kind of punishment from the criminal justice system or anywhere else. So the blessing and cursing doesn't actually seem to be working out. So what do we do when passages like this come up in the lectionary or in our own personal scripture reading? Do we just read over them, avoid them, preach around them? Or do we take them on directly? And if so, how? I'm always interested in taking familiar biblical tropes like this one of God as judge and peering around the edges of them, prying up the inherited interpretations, which have often developed to justify and maintain existing power arrangements, to see if the passage might actually reveal something much more interesting and maybe even subversive of those power arrangements. One way to do that is to examine the original language, in this case, the Hebrew, to try to draw closer to the original meaning of a text before our tired tropes got layered on. 
Now, the Hebrew word for blessed is barak, which means literally to kneel, as in an act of adoration. Now, the question is, who or what is kneeling to whom or what? I think the traditional interpretation of blessed as showered with good things would suggest God kneeling in adoration of the righteous person, but we know that can't be right. It doesn't fit at all with what we know of Hebrew cosmology. God, the Most High God, is not going to kneel to any human being, no matter how righteous. So, that means it has to be the other way around. To be blessed must mean to be in the position of kneeling before God. In other words, to be properly positioned for coming before the Most High God. So the verse that goes, blessed are those who trust in the Lord, more truly means that trusting in the Lord puts you in the proper relationship to God. Trusting in God puts you in right relationship to God and by extension to all of God's creation, whereas trusting in mere mortals and making mere flesh our strength puts one at odds with that right relationship. And interesting, that's pretty much what the passage says if we read on. Those are the ones whose heart turns away from the Lord. They are off kilter, askew, turned away, not in proper alignment with God. That's what it means, apparently, to be cursed. It's not that God is cursing people, but that those people are putting themselves in a position where they are cursed, or systems are putting them in that position, maybe. Cursed people are people who are placed out of alignment. A lot of us know maybe what it's like to be out of alignment physically. When my spine gets out of alignment, I start to have a lot of discomfort. The joints start tugging on my muscles and tendons and ligaments in weird ways, and pretty soon my knees are hurting or my ankles or shoulders. And if I didn't have a good chiropractor, I might never know that it had anything to do with my spine. But the problem is I'm out of alignment. So to be cursed is simply to be spiritually out of alignment with God, with truth, with the created order of things. You are out of right relationship because you are putting your trust in the wrong things. Jeremiah says that the person who trusts in mere mortals or makes mere flesh their strength, that person is cursed. That person is out of alignment, not in right relationship. Instead, we're meant to trust in God. Now, I think when I'm not really slowing down and thinking about it, I have a pretty simplistic understanding of what it means to trust in God. And I think that can cause me to miss the ways in which I am actually putting my trust in human things. I think a lot of times I read a passage like this and I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course, trust in God. As the psalmist says, God is my rock and my refuge. Yep, trust in God. Moving on. But really, truly, wouldn't it be more accurate to say that whiteness is my rock and my refuge, that I am placing my trust in whiteness? At this time in this country, is it not accurate to say that my whiteness keeps me safe? 
safe from racial profiling by police or other authorities, safe from suspicion, safe from unfair treatment under the law. And what about patriarchy? Isn't that a kind of a rock and a refuge for some of our people? Under patriarchy, aren't people who read as cis men kept safer from sexual assault and objectification and the humiliation of not being taken seriously or listened to? Could some of us also say that financial resources are our rock and our refuge? That having a certain financial buffer keeps us safe from hunger and lack of shelter, from lack of health care, from having to put ourselves in dangerous situations just to survive? Doesn't wealth enable us to purchase better protection against legal prosecution, or even against having to steal or participate in underground economies to survive? I think you get my point. It's easy to say, I put my trust in God, yeah, sure, as if doing that is about having a certain spiritual orientation or something. But that ignores the reality that some of us are positioned in such a way that we inevitably put our trust in the flesh even if we intend otherwise. The system practically does it for us. It practically guarantees it. And this pulls us out of alignment, out of right relationship. White supremacy curses white people. Patriarchy curses men. Capitalism curses the wealthy. Whoa, do you see how that reverses things? Later in the Jeremiah passage, the prophet says, the heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? Today, reading that, I'm thinking about how easy it is for me to think that I'm trusting God, to convince myself of it, and to miss the ways that I'm trusting in the flesh. I want to give you a concrete example of this from my own life, something that happened to me recently that really opened my eyes to how much I have unconsciously put my trust in mere mortals or at least in human systems or bargains or agreements. I was made, I was in a meeting with two friends and a group of four facilitators of a workshop that we had recently taken part in. My friends and I had requested the meeting because we were both excited by the work that the facilitation team was doing and also a little distressed by some of the ways we saw patriarchy and white supremacy showing up in it. My friends really wanted to address these things rather than letting them slide as we all had so many times before. And so there we were, and we started out with all the things we had loved and appreciated about the workshop. That part was easy. But when it was time to share our concerns, I felt paralyzed. It was literally hard for me to move my mouth to say the words. Most of our critique was aimed at one particular facilitator, the white man in the group, and I suddenly felt so worried about hurting his feelings. This is something that has held me back so many times before, I can't even tell you, but this time there was something about having my two friends, one on either side of me, that enabled me to see what was really going on inside me. I was worried about hurting this guy's feelings, yes, but it wasn't because I'm such a nice, caring person. It was because deep down, I know that as a white woman, I am supposed to align myself with white men. I am supposed to take care of white men's feelings. 
that that is part of the bargain I have made for my safety. I go along with a certain amount of patriarchy and their internalized supremacy, and they, well, they don't kill me. And maybe they help to keep me safe from other dangers, too, real or trumped up. I think that's the idea, anyway. And it was so hard for me to break my end of this devil's bargain. I could hardly make my mouth form words. And yet, I did not consciously think that I was putting my trust in mere mortals or human things. If you'd have asked me that before, I probably would have said, no, I don't do that. I put my trust in God. So I'm coming to you humbled today because this pretty clearly puts me in the cursed category, at least so long as I go along with this bargain. This is just one of countless stories I could tell you about times I didn't speak up or refrain from taking action because I was afraid to break rank with the allegiances I'd been taught would keep me safe, putting my trust in human systems cursed. We talk a lot in Surge Faith about our relationship to policing, and I believe that that is another way that we have put our trust in human things, in mere mortals, making them our strength. Cursed. And so it's really interesting to me how Jeremiah describes what it's like to be cursed, given that it turns out I am cursed. He says, they shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Wow, pretty desolate. There are a couple of levels on which this description resonates for me. First of all, first off, I can't read this without thinking about climate change about all those pictures, I'm sure you've seen them, those pictures that are circulating of parched, cracked, barren land that will no longer yield a harvest. Salt land, as it appears in this passage, is land that has been poisoned and rendered unable to produce. This is already a reality in some places, and it is our future, scientists tell us, all over the world, if we don't make drastic changes in a hurry. This is where our best thinking has gotten us. This is where we have arrived by relying upon our own devices, by putting our faith in human things. Cursed are those who place their trust in human beings and make human scheming their strength. There's a second, more symbolic level on which this description of a shrub in the parched place resonates And that is in our inability to access imagination, inspiration, and aliveness. I don't know if you've noticed that when you walk into a room and it's a group of white people gathered there, that there is a certain woodenness that is not there when there are predominantly people of color in the room. I don't know if you've noticed it, but I have. No matter how hard we try to sink our roots into the deep wells of imagination and spontaneity and humor and aliveness, we can't connect. Privilege disconnects us from the source of our aliveness. Unlike the tree planted by the river, we are thirsty, longing for sustenance, a longing, by the way, that capitalism is more than happy to exploit. I feel this. God, do I feel this. Cursed. 
Now, please understand that I'm not saying that God is cursing us for mismanaging the earth or for having privileges or for being white or anything like that. I don't believe in that kind of God, God as big judge in the sky, for all the reasons I've already laid out. But we are out of alignment, and it is killing us, spiritually at the moment, and very soon bodily as well. And we are going to take down a whole lot of less privileged folks with us. We've let the temptations of power and profit lead us away from our connection to God, as embodied in this beautiful planet. And we have let white supremacy sever us from the wisdom of indigenous peoples, who are still connected to the earth, still carrying that wisdom. It's a good thing Lent is coming, because it's long past time for some repentance. We need to turn and go another way, and soon. And the great thing about God, if we hold to the truth of our scriptures, is that now is always a good time to turn around. We can withdraw our trust from human things and put our trust in God. What does that look like? I think it looks like breaking rank, like refusing to play along anymore like failing to hold up our end of the devil's bargain we have made with white supremacy and heteropatriarchy and capitalism. It means renewing our connection to God's people and God's creation and moving toward humble participation in interdependent community with people of color here and around the world. It means speaking up and acting out and loving the way our hearts long to love, remembering that justice is what love looks like in public and doing all of this regardless of the consequences. It means truly putting our trust in God, knowing that even if the worst happens and powerful people or systems take their full revenge on us, something essential will live on from it. That is the promise of resurrection. In the end, I did speak up in that meeting with the group of facilitators. I had to start by acknowledging that I was struggling that I was tempted to take care of the white man in the group, that I felt grateful to him just for being at the table when so few white men are stepping up in that way, and that I was angry at having to feel grateful for that when all he was doing was just acting like a human being among other human beings the way the rest of us have to do all the time. I had to say all of that before I could even give my feedback. But eventually I did, and so did my friends. And it is amazing what happened. We connected, all seven of us. The facilitators heard us, including the white man. In fact, he and I made plans to get together and compare notes on what it is like to find ourselves in leadership positions as white people in this time, how awkward that is, how uncomfortable we feel, and what we are learning about how to do it with humility. And not only that, he actually followed through to make a date. Other configurations of the grouping are planning other next steps and creative interventions together. So much good is coming out of it. A blessing. Many blessings. I realize it could have gone otherwise, but it didn't. God turned a tense conversation into a blessing for everyone involved. This is the kind of thing that can happen. Indeed, I think that God longs to help make happen when we put our trust in God, remembering that God operates in and through communal discernment, through honest conversations where we are not afraid to speak up. 
So much more is possible for us. So much love and community is available to us. If we are willing to divest from putting our trust in mere mortals and the systems that we create, and instead to trust in God, as made manifest in communities of resistance, recovery, and reimagining. This Sunday, if we're going to talk about the Beatitudes, about blessings and curses, let's spread the good news about that. Amen. I want to challenge all of us who have some kind of privilege this week to think about what repentance looks like for us. Where have we put our faith in those privileges, put our faith in mere mortals or made human things our strength? In other words, where have we been playing along with the rules, spoken or unspoken, of this dominant culture? Where have we been, been afraid to alienate people who have systemic power over us? What are you not speaking up about? What have you been unwilling to say and to whom? Where could you intervene if you had the courage? Tell us your stories. We can all learn from them and we can pray for each other and support one another in breaking rank. If I hadn't had my two friends with me the night of the meeting with that facilitation team, I don't know that I could have spoken up. We need support and accountability from each other. You can share your stories, your challenges, your successes and failures by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. On SoundCloud, search for The Word is Resistance. On Facebook, we're at Surge Faith. You can also donate your financial resources. Stretch yourself maybe a little further than feels comfortable or safe. Notice where you are relying on human-created wealth for your safety and try stepping out on faith a little bit. Find projects to support that are doing the work that is important to you. I'll list a couple of ideas in the transcript. For example, if you are concerned about the treatment of Native elder Nathan Phillips in Washington, D.C. by the mostly white young men from the Catholic school, you might want to donate to Native Youth Alliance. You can also support undocumented families who are still struggling to recover from California wildfires by going to 805 UndocuFund Fire Relief. And finally, black organizers in Chicago and around the country are fundraising to save the childhood home of assassinated Black Panther Chairman Fred Hampton Sr. Funds will be used to purchase the home and maintain it as an organizing space and museum. Links to all these fundraisers can be found in the transcript. Thank you for joining me today. Let us know how we're doing and how your actions are going by commenting on our SoundCloud and Facebook pages. We value your input and ideas, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. You can find more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. 
Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.